Hi there, I'm Craig Matson, and this is Spiritual Capital. This week's exchange focuses on the role that neighborhoods can play in startups. I'm going to be talking about a particular example of a startup, chatting with Daryl and Stephanie Anser, who have planted a church in a neighborhood of Kansas City on Linwood Boulevard, to be specific, if you happen to know KC. Right about now, some of you are saying, okay, I'm out of here. Me and church, we don't get along. Uh, you run a nonprofit, right? You run a, an enterprise of some sort or another. You might say, I do real work in the world. I don't just sing songs and tell stories about some dead guy named Jesus who didn't stay dead. No offense. But hang on. Daryl and Stephanie are Christians, but their church may not be what you're thinking of when steeples come to mind and pews and, I don't know, lots of segregation. But for one thing, this is a multiracial project. It's resident-focused, it's place-based. Daryl and Stephanie do a lot of community development work, and they have an economic lens on their work. Their project has given them wisdom about how to help predominantly white organizations to partner with on-the-ground, hard-to-see neighborhood associations that are bringing real change, not least when it comes to racial equity. Stephanie was in youth ministry, and then when we came, it was when I came, it was youth ministry. But then in this community that we're in, it really was more along the lines of community development, whether it be through our neighborhood association or Stephanie helping to start some initiatives with parents and then some entrepreneurial things connecting neighbors. And then from that, the church came. So we definitely relate to the grassroots. I don't know where we fit mid-sized, small organization. I don't know. But <laughs> our stuff's pretty organic. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we definitely relate to organizational leaders. Mm-hmm. In the course of doing a couple of years of research, I've come to think that these organic, to use your word, community-based organizations are doing some of the most important, some of the most vital change-making today. And they really are inconspicuous, these organizations. But as soon as you figure out they're there, then you, you, know, you start seeing them everywhere and uh, realizing that, yeah, they're doing vital work. My sense is that people in more mainstream organizations might want to partner with organizations like yours, but either because they don't see you or because they really don't know how to start, it's hard to create those partnerships. Does that sound right to you? Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. yeah. You know, that partnership question is something we've been struggling with or wrestling with for a number of years because I believe, we believe partnerships mutual. Like, there's no such thing as a one-sided partnership. The last uh, church that um, was interested in partnering with us, they were used to kind of sending missions teams to areas, you know, do a cleanup and different things like that. But you know, like like you said, like our work is more change making, more relationship, highly relational. Yeah. So we would just say, hey, let's get let's get to know each other. And then you just find out that once it moves to the realm of relationships, folks don't know what to do. <laughs> it's like I know how to do a service project, but I don't know how to like sit down with you and have a meal and have a con- like that's oh. and, and and I think that is the perfect opportunity for us all to grow. But I think when you come in with the benefactor i have something you need 
it's, it's and hard even like function. I'm here to serve because yeah. I think that like there's a lot of people that are leading organizations that want to do good that maybe don't have that like I have something need they don't realize it mm-hmm. it's more in the form of service or giving back mm-hmm. um, but it can still communicate that same thing mm-hmm. so. absolutely I, I sort of laughed when you said that probably because I know that discomfort from the inside. If if I can't be the white benefactor here, uh, what do I do? What? Just sit down and have a, a meal with you? But I also laugh because it's such a simple thing. Like, it shouldn't be so uncomfortable. I don't think it feels like enough. You know, like, for hmm. people who are looking for that, I think it doesn't feel like that's actually doing anything. Like, that's not enough. There must hmm. be something more when really... That's like the key to unlock the magic, you know, like sitting mm-hmm. down around a table together. So, mm-hmm. but it seems almost too simple or too small. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Why did you decide, each of you, to do work at the neighborhood level? I mean, you could have done this at an exclusively churchly level or at an exclusively corporate level or a nonprofit charity level or something like that. But you chose to work in neighborhood. I'd love to hear from each of you why. Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, my, my journey kind of started as a college student. I didn't realize it was at that neighborhood level. When I first started, it was in more of a parachurch youth organization or a youth program. But um, I am just a person who loves relationships. And so I think that turned into relationships for me. Um, So while I would go to volunteer and serve within the structure of a program, that community that I met like became my relationships and so then in hours outside of you know the program hours like this was the community of people that I started to kind of build my life with and around and so I think just over time I just loved being in community having the flexibility to just Mm. hang out with folks eat together go do something fun and and while I did serve in programs which are good and helpful it was actually just the genuine, like authentic relationships that developed over time that have been life changing for me. Mm. And so I think um, now that Daryl and I have like intentionally made our life <laughs> here in, in, mm-hmm. in communities and in neighborhoods, we see the power of that. And we see there are a lot of great programs and services out there, but the gaps that we began to see were just at that very neighborhood level of knowing your neighbor. And that's something that organized programs can't always do. We just really leaned into it because one, that's what we were looking for (laughs) as a neighbor. We wanted to have relationships. But then seeing the power that just comes from having a community of people that do life together that, you know, we all started having kids and we shared things. It's just the power of relationship. And so I think that those were just gaps that we saw um, that we really loved (laughs) and so have focused on. Hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I grew up in London. And so I I grew up in um, like our version of public housing. And as I was saying, I remember going to the laundromat. Uh, We had a laundromat around the corner from our apartment. We go there and wash our clothes. Um, I remember community being built in the laundromat, community being built on our street all the kids playing soccer in the middle of the street, almost getting hit by cars, you know, like I remember that. Um, I remember some uh, downstairs neighbors setting their apartment on fire and the community coming to take care of us. Um, I (laughs) I remember someone hitting my mom's car and dragging him to our apartment. Like all that, they drug him to the apartment 
and <laughs> it was just crazy. So anyway, I've just <laughs> I've grown up in this community where we take care of each other. Uh-huh. Um, so that was that. That's been my upbringing. Um, but mm-hmm. then for me, there was also this disconnect. So there was my community life, and there was my church life, which was uh-huh. totally disconnected from the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I've I've uh, I grew up in a Christian household. I had my experience of community outside of the church, but had this deep in this family of deep faith. And it's not until I got older mm-hmm. where I I learned that they were actually supposed to be intersected. Um, and I went to a, a Christian college and realized that even at my Christian college, nobody in the surrounding neighborhood even knew we were there. I was like, mm-hmm. what is going on? Like I'm seeing this thing, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Of, of, of people of um, who's supposed to be bringing peace and goodness and love, and you know, turning the world radically right side up, right? Um, mm-hmm. Living in in a bubble. Across the street from my college, there was a senior housing complex. So I went over there and started hanging out with the seniors, and any of them needed help. So anyway, I ended up getting my college involved, and then from that, youth ministries in the community got involved, and it went from me experiencing community, like literally in my neighborhood, to realizing the intersection of my faith and community, and then I moved towards actually creating that. Um, So when Stephanie and I were in the process of getting married, the question was, what would it look like for us to do this intentionally wherever we live? And that's been our, we've celebrated 10 years of marriage in a couple of weeks. And this has been something we've done the whole, no matter where we've lived, we build Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we have a child with special needs. And one of our friends asked asked me the other day um, if we have any spaces where we're able to hang out with folks who have kids with special needs. And we're like, yeah, but we had to create it. (laughs) You know, it's like Mm -hmm. where there's like stepping up by these gaps. Mm. Um, we we have to create that, but it was me experiencing it first, and it just be normal. Like right? just this was just normal way of life. We just take care of each other. We love each other because we're neighbors. And then recognizing like, okay, my faith is deeply connected. My de- my faith should inform this, or vice versa. Mm. I've had enough experience and have to actually c- create those spaces to help others um, you know, find their gifts um, and, and, and have, like Stephanie said, create spaces where kind of like a key to unlock people's gifts. Hmm. So this season of this podcast has been focused on what kind of looking through uh, a lens of place um, at the work we do, whatever or kind of organization we're running, like how does our place shape that work? And there's a paradox here or there's a contradiction in that I am talking to you from a very different place right now. We're, we're looking at each other on screens and we're, this is a conversation mediated by digital tech in a, in a world like ours where the digital seems to have erased place and has shrunk the world down. Why is place so important in your work? Why do you think it should be important to other people? You know, I think, yeah, this last season of like all of life being moved to virtual (laughs) rooms and spaces has has really been interesting. But I think what it's highlighted for us, you know, specifically looking at it as we lead our church, we have not yet gathered back in person on a Sunday morning. Um, So we're over a year now of Mm. gathering online. However, um, because we do focus on neighborhood, because we do focus on a proximity, a a geographic area. I feel like as I've talked with other ministers or pastors, this season has really been a challenge for them because people feel so disconnected. But I feel like for our church, like we've been able to stay connected. 
And it has been those seeing each other because we live a few blocks away from each other or seeing each other because we organize, you know, we just go by each other's houses and sit on the porch or sit on the back deck or be in the front yard or find creative ways to gather. Our community really hasn't skipped a beat. And while we've been Hmm. able to make that shift to do some things virtually, like I've seen how relationship is really what has held us together over the last year, where as I hear from other colleagues, like the challenge um, that they're navigating, but I think it's because we are in a specific place um, Mm -hmm. and we are intentional about those relationships and and it has taken, um, you know, be physically seeing each other. And even when we had to like social distance and, and, you know, measure ourselves apart from each other and wearing masks, like we still were able to stay connected, which I think has been powerful Mm -hmm. um, in this moment. And then also just thinking about the digital divide, as they call it, like we Mm -hmm. lose an entire group of people um, Mm -hmm. when we don't have physical place. You know, I think about some of our neighbors who are older who aren't on the internet, but like the conversations that have happened <laughs> while we're walking, you know, outside, like, like there are, there are things in people that you wouldn't know or that wouldn't be connected only in, in um, digital space. So yeah, I think that that's been a core of who we are uh, and why place has been so important to us. Yeah. And I would say, I think the, the idea of place is so complex. There's the relational aspect, but there's also the health aspect. Like, I feel like our health is also determined by how we engage with place. Um, Like, I think it's the book Bowling Alone, where the author talks about, like, our relationships and the place where we find ourselves, or social connections. Yes, um, being online, uh, technology advances that. Um, But there's also something about receiving a hug. (laughs) You know, there's something about, even though, you know, there's, there's also something about being in an environment that is plagued by violence um there's something about like the 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 trauma of a community and that place impacts us um so not only is there are there benefits to us being in a place and engaging but we also help to make it healthier um, by the ways that we engage so i've heard many many people say that your best alarm system is your neighbor right get to know your neighbor right so i think the reasons for engaging in place are so vast. You know, we learned this from from native theologians, and also I do. T- I take Tai Chi, so the idea of being grounded in place, mm-hmm. um, Chi, you know, all of these things, you know, centering ourselves. I think we live in a society that's so fast paced. We're always wanting to move. There's something about stopping and observing where you are, trying to connect with that place. I believe it's healing for us in so many different areas. So I think place is something we overlook, but it's also something we all desperately need. Uh Thank you for mentioning the importance of trauma. At the same time, you mentioned the the goodness of an embrace. Um, That's um, a difficult thing to keep together, the... Yeah. So place is complicated. Like you said, place is complicated. It's mysterious. It's, there's a lot more going on in any place than meets the casual glance. I wanted to ask you, and again, sort of thinking from an organizational perspective, I mean, as we talk about neighbors, you can immediately think about like my neighbor next door, but 
I'm thinking about people who are running a company in a neighborhood or, you know, leading a church or attempting to plant a church or who are really wanting to offer a service uh, through a nonprofit. What kind of advice would you give to people for really seeing their neighborhood life, their neighborhood ecology, good and bad, the trauma and the embrace? We took a lot of walks (laughs) is the first thing that comes to mind. And I think whether you're talking about, like you said, um, you know, I'm an individual, we live on the street, but if I am the leader of an organization, um, I am still a neighbor um, and my organization um, is a neighbor. And so how am I cultivating the relationship between neighbors? Um, and so, and so I think sometimes we can forget <laughs> as we're running programs and services, like we're also a neighbor. And do we know our neighbors? And do and do they know us? Things that helped us early on was like literally we we walked all through our neighborhood. We would stop in in like corner stores or daycares or like we got to know the folks who were running programs, offering services having a store at, at the same time as we were meeting some residents who, who live there. And we just, that's how we saw a lot of things. And I think when you walk, you see differently than when you're just driving because you notice the little things, you notice the pieces of the sidewalk that are or are not there. You get to stop and have conversations with folks that are passing and hearing stories of how, how did this business owner come to open their business and what was it like, you know, years ago versus now or are they new? And like you would just hear the story. So I think walking has just been really powerful for us, um, along with listening and, and learning the stories and learning mm-hmm. the history and seeking those who have been there longer and hearing what has happened over time. So those were just a couple things initially that came to me yeah i'm I'm just thinking for someone who's launching an organization in a new community i think listening is key and finding those leaders those connectors not just people who have a position Uh, many times we only associate leadership with title Mm -hmm. but there are folks in communities that are leading but they don't have an official title at an organization so finding those people and then also where where like economically, where are your resources going um, in terms of who are you hiring? Are you hiring from that community? Mm. Are you hiring livable wages <laughs> from that community, um, in that community? Um, are you a nuisance? You know, like, are you that neighbor, that organization that is just, you know, got the semis rolling through, <laughs> you know, the na- you know, like, what kind of neighbor are you? It, it's one thing to take up space. Mm. So that's one thing. But then how are you connecting to the, the ecosystem of that community? Mm-hmm. Um, how are you helping to make it a better place? If you have me in space, how can the community use those spaces? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have different amenities, how can that be used by Mm -hmm. the community? There are so many, I mean, I even think about the churches in our neighborhood have full gyms that nobody can use. (laughs) You know, they don't, they don't trust the community. Um, So building trust, listening, being a convener, being a connector, being a learner. um, I think those are all important pieces. And I think you you touched on this, but like investing your dollars there. So even Mm -hmm. as an organization, if you're doing a corporate lunch, who, where are you getting catering from? If you are buying toiletries or things for your office, like where are you purchasing those products? And mm-hmm. just simply by circulating your dollars, keeping them in the community like that, 
that's helpful. And that's a way to be connected and think about how do you invest in the people and in the other organizations and services that are, are there when you need something? Do you look first at how you can meet those needs through your own neighborhood? I really love the, the material practicality of what you're describing. Um, Stephanie talking about just taking a walk. I have heard organizational leaders talking about the importance of like getting out of their buildings and just walking in their their places. Yeah, both of you emphasizing the the economic participation one can do in in your place. That just feels really wonderfully practical. So spiritual capital, as I've come to conceive it, is a capacity to recognize and maybe participate in some of the subtler, hard-to-see goods, resources, but also predicaments in in a place. One of the real surprises for me was the importance of race in, in the conversation about spiritual capital. I would love to ask you if you could address an organizational leader who runs a predominantly white organization, but who really wants to participate and partner with organizations like yours, um, what kind of advice would you give? How? What kind of counsel? <laughs> I feel like at least this past year, with all the you know racial uprisings happening, especially after George Floyd's death, we had a number of churches reach out hmm. and wanting to partner with us. And at the same time, we're trying to walk our community and our people through this, as um, many people were, tr- were triggered. We're we're trying to walk our people through. We're trying to center them, even our even our communication, like we're really centering our community. But then we have these groups wanting to partner. And, mm. you know, fortunately, many times it's from guilt. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. oh, this is happening. Let me go find some people of color. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, first, so first of all, uh, don't do that. Because <laughs> uh, we can tell. Um, so, uh, so first of all, don't, but then the second thing I have told them is like this whole, that there is talk about race and racism. And I feel like, especially the younger generation are really pushing us to talk about white supremacy and whiteness, um, but not white supremacy as a KKK, but white supremacy as this hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, this understanding or this, this ideology that white is normal. You know, a simple example of that is when I go to the store and I need to buy product for my hair, I go find the ethnic shelf and it's usually mm-hmm. just a shelf. Um, and then there's like, a whole aisle of like stuff for normal hair, you know? Wow. Uh, yeah. So that's an example of white supremacy. So uh, an encouragement to organizational leaders is to do that work internally. You're never going to finish it, but how does whiteness um, exist? Um, there's documents that there's a lot of work on like white supremacist culture within organizations. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing that research, doing that work, finding out how does white supremacist culture manifest itself in me, in our organization? Mm-hmm. Because then when you approach a partner out of a white supremacist, it's just going to cause conflict. So I think doing that internal work and, and whiteness, it, I feel like I always have to clarify, this isn't about pigmentation, but it's about the racial hierarchy that has been created and has existed for hundreds of years. I don't think we should jump straight to partnership. I think there should be an inward facing, hmm. at least that inward first. Why every time there's a racial uprising, why do I always feel the need to go find a person of color? Because I didn't do that before. Hmm. Why, do I, or why do I feel the need to justify, like, I'm not racist, let me go, you know, um, so there's something in there. 
So I think it's doing the inner work, educating yourself, not asking people of color to educate you mm. um, because all the resources are out there. It's free to get on Google. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like it's free. Uh, yeah, do that internal work first. After you have done some of that initial work, mm. after you have had those conversations internally when there's not necessarily a news headline that mm. is taking everyone's time and attention, like when mm. it's a, a regular Tuesday mm. and you're still <laughs> thinking about these things mm. and having these conversations, then you pursue like relationship, mutual mm. relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and you approach whether it be a you know, another organization, another entity for partnership, you approach relationally looking for mutual relationship, knowing that we both are coming to the table with something to offer each other. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully together as a result of our relationship, like everyone will grow. And so I think realizing there's learning and there's giving and receiving mm -hmm. all the way around. And also to, to listen and take the lead of the person that you're looking to partner with. Things at the grassroots community level can sometimes function <laughs> and process and look very different from what you might think business strategy-wise makes the most sense. But I think that you have to trust those that you're looking to partner with mm -hmm. and trust that it might look different than the plan you might have imagined. But what is it that is happening on the ground, is happening in the community? And how can you join in and be a part? Not that you have to join in and, and lead the way and even join in and, and follow and do some things that maybe feel weird or pointless mm -hmm. <laughs> or silly or like, why? How is this helping? How is this making a difference? Trust that the folks that you're looking to partner with know hmm. know what's happening in their community and know what's needed and know the the way to do it. One and one final thing, there's a friend of mine said this a while ago. We have to know what the intended goal is. Each each party coming to the table has to know hmm. uh, what the intended goal is because she said usually um, white folks will approach a partnership one in friendship. But people of color want liberation. That's another reason why these things fall apart, because it's a completely different goal. You know, like, do we all want our, all liberation for all, freedom for everyone? Hmm. Or is it just that you want to be in close proximity to color, you know, mm -hmm. to make yourself feel okay in this moment? Yeah. Really hard discussions, really. I mean, that's some really deep internal work, which will take courage. But I really believe that's when we'll start seeing some significant shifts in the partnership dialogue. Fascinating on both counts what you're saying, um, Stephanie, about the importance of sort of being patient with a, a different approach or a different mode. And Daryl, what you're pointing out about friendship and liberation, wh what would you say would be a way to distinguish between those? Yeah, well, I think another way of just talking about it is you know, the question is asked, what comes first, unity or justice? And the answer is just, justice comes before unity. It's impossible for us to be united when one of us continues to face injustice and the other one continues to benefit <laughs> from the injustice. Like, we can't mm -hmm. be united. Can you really have friendship? I, I think it was Austin Channing Brown. She said, my friends are people who continue to do the work even if I'm not around. Like they're mm -hmm. doing the internal work. They're still mm -hmm. working towards justice. She said, those are my friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, again, that's the, like when you really care for somebody, you want their freedom as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll recognize the areas where you're benefiting or you're just able to live your life where all systems just work. 
for you. You're able to navigate them. And you know it's not the case for someone who you're trying to pursue friendship with. Hopefully, you know, that will then change the dynamics of your friendship. And then it moves from associates to allies, you know, which is a word that some folks will use. And then you start to leverage your privilege for the sake, you know, of the other. Um, and then it becomes mutual because there's definitely is definitely things that we can learn from one another. It's hard, especially in a, in a time where people are crying out for justice um, and we're seeing it in all levels, local, state. I mean, we're seeing this like we're just in this moment right now. It's really hard. I, I would really struggle with someone saying, hey, I just want to be your friend. Like, let's not talk about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just let's just go out to dinner. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'll buy you lunch. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. OK. Do you really see me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you really see me? Um, so. Sounds like a pretty thin notion of friendship, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, peace. I think something that I've also been contemplating this last year is this whole idea of, hey, come to the table. How do we get folks of color to the table? How do we? I, I believe the table itself is wrong. Like we need to destroy the table and build a new one. We're getting the same results. So, which again, I think goes back to the whole in the inner work. All of this takes um, having a brand new imagination, you know? So can we reimagine the table that we're all trying to come to? Can we reimagine place? And can we join our neighbors in creating that together? But to do that, I have to see the inherent value of my neighbors and the inherent value of this place. We are interconnected. You know, it's like Dr. King said, like we're all connected in this, we're woven in this garment of destiny. Um, or we were reminded this weekend of the Aboriginal um, activists that I, I believe was something along with the lines of uh, my liberation is tied into your liberation. Again, we just need to have a different imagination and starting point of this work um, because I think we've been stuck for a long time. Well, thank you both. Really grateful for the time you've given and the, the carefulness and wisdom with which you're speaking from your lived experience. Really resourceful. Thank you. Thank thanks you for so having much. us. Yeah, thanks for having us. If you were taken by Daryl and Stephanie's pastoral vision and work, and if you'd like to support their neighborhood development project, you should stop by their website. It's www.newcommunitykc.church. That's www.newcommunitykc.church. I was was taken myself with their advice for partnering well between white organizations and minority-led place-based projects. Take walks, share meals, tell stories, expand your notion of what it means to affiliate, what it means to partner, what it means to befriend. I'm Craig Matson, your host for the podcast Spiritual Capital, and the pod will be taking a vacation break as I'll be out on a transcontinental road trip with my family. But I look forward to rejoining you on Monday, June the 14th. I'll just mention in passing for those of you rare souls who listen to a podcast all the way to the last note, that I started this one in order to caffeinate a book project published by Whip and Stock, a book entitled Why Spiritual Capital Matters. And just this week, I received proofs for the cover of the book, so I know it's going to exist in the universe, and I'll be excited to share it with you in what looks to be a matter of weeks. (music) 